Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Because we want hospitals to do more and more in terms of uh, filling gaps in social services or working in the community, dealing with some of these social factors. The more we ask people to do that, particularly in areas where the need is greatest, the more we take money away. Why is this a good idea? I'm your host, Alan Weil. A central tenet of the move to value-based payment in healthcare is that quality can be measured and high-quality providers should be rewarded for their excellence, often in the form of bonus payments. Efforts to measure quality quickly run into many challenges. Chief among them is the heterogeneity in patient characteristics. Different patients present with varying levels of severity, and equally excellent clinicians will have different outcomes depending upon those patient characteristics. Now, adjusting quality measures for disease severity is pretty uncontroversial. But adjusting for other patient risk factors like poverty or housing instability or having lived a lifetime bearing the burden of racism, well, adjusting for those is a lot more controversial. Whether quality measures should be adjusted for these patient characteristics is the topic of today's health policy. My guest is Dr. David Nairns, Director Emeritus of the Center for Health Policy and Health Services Research at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Nairns and his co-authors published a paper in the April 2021 issue of Health Affairs. It's part of our Policy Insights series. In the paper, they review the arguments surrounding the incorporation of what they called social risk factors in quality metrics. We're going to talk about those arguments for and against in just a moment. Dr. Nairns, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is a really interesting paper, and it's such a central topic in the discussions around quality and reimbursement today. Should you risk adjust, and if so, how? But for those listeners who haven't been following quality measurement and the quality movement in healthcare for the last few decades, why don't you just start with where are we measuring quality? What does it even mean to measure quality in healthcare? Sure, that's a great place to start. Um, you know, we can go all the way back to broad characteristics. When we think about quality in all aspects of our life, we think about broad dimensions like, is something good? Is it right? Does it work? Do the pieces fit? And so some of those concepts make their way into healthcare. In healthcare, um, we always turn to some of the thinking of Avadis Donabedian, who laid a lot of this out for us long, long time ago, decades ago, with really three broad categories. Uh, there's structure, there's process, there's outcome. Structure are the uh, static characteristics of things that create the potential for quality or the uh, essential uh, foundation for quality. Process, in obedience terms, these are the things that are done or not done and how they're done and by whom and when they're done. Um, And in his thinking, this is kind of the central essence of quality. And then you have outcomes, which is what happened to the patient. Did the patient live or die? Did the patient get better? Um, and you know, you might wonder, well, why isn't outcome the essence or the home? Well, Donna Bedian made a very important point, and I, I, I think it needs to be upfront here because we'll get back to it later, that outcomes really only measure quality indirectly. Outcomes are affected by quality of care and by other things. And if you want to use outcome as a measure of quality, you have to control for the other things. Well, that is exactly what we're going to be talking about. Before we get to the controlling uh, for those other things, let's talk about how quality measurement is used. Because I, 
we see it used for quality improvement initiatives. We see it for payment and paying for value. Just again, we could have a whole session on this, but just to set the stage, what what happens if we measure a hospital or a, a physician practice and say uh, your quality is one standard deviation better or let's say worse than the norm? Not much to say beyond what you just said. Um, I had three things in mind in terms of how quality measures are used. The one we can largely set aside, I think, is just local internal quality improvement. Given clinic or hospital or ACO can have a measure and see if it gets better over time, assuming you can interpret it clearly as better or worse. Um, And that's one way to use a quality measure. But the ways that we talk about more, and I think are more relevant to this discussion today, is either pay for performance or public reporting. And pay for performance is as you described. Some payer, could be CMS, could be a private payer, somebody, rewards uh, good quality to the extent it can be measured, punishes poor quality. Now, public reporting uh, is different in the sense there's not money involved directly, but there's some public display of who's good and who's bad. And that has its own consequences. I think both of these are designed in one way or the other to motivate improvement. Uh, but they have somewhat different characteristics. And it's, it's useful as we go through to uh, keep that distinction in mind sometimes. So you focused on these uh, social factors, but risk adjustment or quality uh, risk adjustment of quality measures for clinical conditions is is sort of standard fare. Um, so draw the contrast between these clinical conditions and the social risk factors. Clinical conditions um, are widely accepted as adjustment factors, and you can imagine it. If you take two doctors, say, and you compare their outcomes on some things, one better than another, the one who's worse off is going to say, well, that's because my patients are sicker. Um, and he, that might be right. It might be true. Um, and so what does sicker mean? Uh, it could be more advanced disease. It could be greater comorbidity. Uh, it could be greater frailty on the part of the patient, maybe just an older patient. Um, and the fundamental idea, particularly when you look at outcomes, is that it's harder to achieve good outcomes in the presence of these clinical risk factors, no matter how good the quality of care is. That's widely accepted. It's done all the time. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost automatic and essential. I think where the we enter into the social domain is we talk about also characteristics, uh, but these are different characteristics. These are things, as you said earlier, like poverty, like illiteracy, food insecurity, uh, housing instability. Um, and these also uh, can have an effect on outcomes. The presence of these can also make it harder to achieve good outcomes, which is fundamentally the reason why we think about including them in risk adjustment. But I think they're different and more controversial because all these things have perhaps a political overtone or a broader social policy overtone. Giving some texture to this topic is so important before we get into the criteria that you suggest. So if you if you imagine two clinicians, one serving a population with very advanced disease and one with much earlier stage disease, you would expect the outcomes to be different, not as a reflection of quality. You could say the same thing about some of these social factors. So if just from a technical perspective, it seems like you might want to adjust for the exact same reasons you do for clinical severity. You mentioned sort of political overtones. I guess I want to push what that really means. What's the, what's the worry here that if you say, well, 
yes, I do worse because my patients are poorer. That may be a true statement, but what are the potential negative consequences that arise from that framing that are different from the negative consequences that occur if I say, well, I do worse because my patients walk in with a more advanced uh, disease? I think people on both sides of the debate about whether to adjust or not are, are socially conscious. These are caring people. We get into these questions that we're going to get into just in a second of, do these factors influence outcomes through a causal pathway involving quality of care? And if so, you typically don't want to adjust that away. You do not want to mask or excuse poor quality. But if these factors affect outcomes through causal pathways that do not involve quality, um, let's say, for example, you have a higher re readmission rate um, among, say, people in a poor community, because the Meals on Wheels program is non-existent or inefficient, and people just can't get good nutrition, and they end up coming back to the hospital. If what you want to do is measure the quality of care of the hospital, it's not clear that you want to hold accountable for the quality of the Meals on Wheels program. Now, that's debatable, and that's part of this debate, but at least there, there's a line of thinking that says you should not hold medical entities accountable for things that really exist in society and exert their effects on outcomes through societal forces that are not medical quality of care. So this gets at this sort of tension between accountability, which is the language you used, but also sort of making excuses for differential treatment, which of course we don't want to be doing. And so this, how do you, how do you walk the line between saying you shouldn't be accountable for something that's out of your control, but we certainly don't want to say it's okay if category A of people do worse than category B of people when the reason they're doing worse actually may be because you're not taking as good care of them. That would not be where we want to be. Okay, well, so um, I, we should walk through how you, in your paper, uh, really dig into this fundamental question that's so complex, but I think we'll do that after we take a quick break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. COVID-19 has reshaped American life. Along the way, Health Affairs has published research and perspectives on the novel coronavirus. Our free COVID-19 Resource Center collects blogs and fast-track journal articles, so you never miss the latest perspective from the health policy community. Highlights include an audio series from NYC Health and Hospitals on their early response efforts. Visit healthaffairs.org backslash COVID-19 to stay up to date. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. David Nairns about adjusting quality measures for social risk. Before the break, we were just beginning to get into this question of when is it appropriate to do so. In your paper, you propose five questions to consider uh, in deciding whether or not social risk adjustment is appropriate. Um, why don't you just give us a thumbnail sketch of those and then we'll start taking them apart. Happy to do that. And indeed, there are five questions. And we tried to use these as a framework for deciding ultimately, is it correct to adjust or, or not? Um, and the first one uh, we already touched on just a little bit. 
is the effect of a social risk factor, uh, uh, the effect of quality of care, or is it something else? And we can talk a little bit more about how you sort that out. It's, it's challenging, but there's some ways to do that. We mentioned that in the paper. Uh, second, is the effect of that factor under the control of the entity being measured? And we can talk a little more about that. Um, third, are the essential data elements you need for risk adjustment present? Um, and this is a, a fairly basic thing. You cannot build and use a risk adjustment model if you don't have the data element. So, but sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Uh, fourth, there's a question of if you do the adjustment, does it make any difference? We've seen examples where you go ahead, you do the modeling, you have the variables, and it just doesn't matter. Uh, the rankings of providers don't change, statistical features don't change, and you say, I could do it, but it doesn't make any difference if I do it, so why bother? That's, that's a question. Does it matter? Um, and then fifth is, is the thing we've also hinted at. If you do do it, given that social risk factors might conceivably exert their effects through two pathways, they might go through quality of care and they might go through elsewhere. If you adjust, is there some danger now that you can document that you're going to uh, mask poor quality of care? If so, then you don't want to adjust. Okay, so I'm going to break these into a couple of groupings because five questions is a lot to keep in mind. Let's start with that middle one, which is around data. Of course, we're a policy journal and we love our data. Maybe everyone uh, doesn't feel as excited about it as we do. But you're obviously, you're right. You can't adjust for something you don't have data on. Um, our collection of data around uh, these sort of social risks is pretty... Uh, haphazard. It's. I think we're doing a lot more now than we used to, and it's certainly not standardized. And if you're trying to benchmark yourself against national standards, for example, uh, you, you you have to feel some confidence that these are being uh, viewed similarly. Um, just walk us through a little bit about this element and and how confident we have to be that we have good measures of risk, because without that, as you say, the whole enterprise just falls apart. I agree. It's it's somewhat haphazard. It's not standardized, but it's getting better. And I think we just have to, uh, as we do in many areas, we make a commitment to doing something. And once we begin to do it, we learn how to do it better and better. Um, so there are some variables that exist in standard data sets, uh, some basic demographic variables that at least are standardized enough uh, that they may be available. And I, people can quibble about how good is good enough, but they're, they're at least reasonably constant so that researchers do use them and uh, people doing quality measurement do use them. Things like uh, housing instability, uh, food insecurity. Uh, right. I mean, I, I do think that uh, think these things matter, um, they're not collected in a standard way. But I think we're moving in that direction. I think there are a lot of initiatives going on about collecting data on what I think we should call health-related social needs at the individual level. Um, there are tools for doing that. There's beginning to be some consensus about how to do that. The major EMR systems uh, are developing uh, templates or, or modules for hosting it. All that takes us in the direction of standardization. We have ICD-10 codes now. Uh, that are set up to capture this, and we just need to use them more and then uh, attach some consequences to them so that people use them in a consistent and, and more complete fashion. But while all this is going on, last thing I should mention is that, surprisingly enough, dual eligible status as one thing um, has a surprisingly powerful and consistent effect 
Um, it's in claims data sets, it's in Medicare data sets, and while we are waiting for other things to get better, we can do a fair amount just with dual eligible status. And of course, that means someone who's eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, which means uh, they are most likely over 65, although there are other ways to be eligible for Medicare, but they also have very limited uh, resources and often a high level of frailty. Um, and it picks up, it, the reason it works is it picks up many of those things. There can be a functional status piece. There's a low income piece. It picks up a bit of both. Uh, and it tends to work when you use it. Now, we've published a lot of papers that uh, talk particularly about like the, re the readmission penalty for hospitals, which got a lot of play, a big sort of pay for performance move. And, you know, paper after paper, analysis after analysis shows that hospitals that serve more disadvantaged populations tend to get penalized by that reallocation mechanism. So that now brings in your first, second, and I would also sort of say your last question or consideration in your paper, which is who, who's responsible for these differences uh, in, in overcoming the potential outcome differences that arise from the differences in the population served? So I just wonder if you could help us navigate. I mean, there's so many threads to pick up here, but part of it has to do with how we're using the measure. Part of it has to do with, as you say, who's accountable. You know, we, we have a long history of thinking that, you know, the hospital wasn't accountable. People walk in the door, they walk in, and the, the responsibility begins when they walk in the door. We're now, now we're saying, well, we want you to be uh, accountable for the health of your community. Uh, that may not have been uh, their purview for a while, uh, for, for very long. So how, how do we sort of stretch these concepts or fit reality into these uh, concepts? We could go for an hour or two just on this issue, and we can't. Um, but uh, I think what I'll mention, yes, absolutely, the thinking is changing about this. And clearly, there are broader ideas now about the role and scope uh, and accountability of, of hospitals. I guess we could focus there. Now, we, we may take the same view eventually about ACOs or about health plans or about clinics or about individual clinicians in MIPS, but I think we see it most clearly in hospitals. Um, and it, it's a debatable point. I, where we try to take this in the paper is to say something that has to happen for a measure developer, a measure user, is essentially to declare a theory of quality or accountability and say, first of all, here are the boundaries that we are presuming or here are the boundaries that we are assigning. And then within those boundaries, however narrow or broad they are, Here's now how we think we should proceed. Now, the broader you set these boundaries, the less likely you are probably to adjust for these social factors. At the extreme, you say, hospitals should deal with any of this. doesn't matter if the Meals on Wheels program is bad. Hospital, you should build one or you should create one. Make your own. Uh, local transportation system's awful. Hospital, you should step up and fix that. I think in practical terms, there always will be limits to that. And even if we could deal with the here and now, as you very correctly pointed out earlier uh, in this discussion, we have people living with a lifetime of exposure uh, to a lot of these problems, and that lifetime exposure doesn't go away no matter what we do now. Um, so I think there will always be some conditions in which it still makes sense to look at adjustment, but the need for it or the appropriateness of it goes up or down depending on how broadly or narrowly you define this accountability. 
So I like this very, you, that you need a theory. You have to start with a theory and then you can sort of go from there. I'm always struck by the example. I like your example around Meals on Wheels. And you say, well, the hospital should, and maybe they should. But I'm also struck that a lot of our programs are designed, and I cited the data on readmissions, that if you have poor outcomes, we actually take money away from you. So yes, the, in, the incentive might be to go build a Meals on Wheels program, but the practical reality in the in the walls of the hospital is you just lost a bunch of money, and now you don't have the money you might have had to uh, to build that program. So we have to figure out, you know, incentives are great, but they're, they're also real resource allocation problems here. Exactly. And, and I think that's why I felt strongly about this issue for many years and have been engaged in it for as long as I have. That's exactly it. That as we want hospitals, again, we can keep the discussion focused there, to do more and more in terms of uh, filling gaps in social services or working in the community, dealing with some of these social factors. The more we ask people to do that, particularly in areas where the need is greatest, the more we take money away. Why is this a good idea? Now, I mean, the, the response to that is, well, it's about incentives. You know, you, you, you want to draw hospitals' attention to it. You don't want them to be neglectful. You want them to be focused the way you intend them to be focused. But fact is, all these things cost money. If you're going to do Meals on Wheels, support housing, provide transportation, uh, have a stronger social work program, everything takes money. And if you take money away, it's harder. You conclude with this idea that adjusting for social risk should be the default. So tell us what you mean by that and how that would actually work in practice. Yeah, I mean, this is an extension, I think, of where we just were, that in many cases, there may be a real gray area about the causal path through which the social factors exert their influence. And therefore, it's a little ambiguous about is it quality or not quality. And you may have examples where you can clearly show that it's both. Um, and there may be questions still, no matter our five questions, no matter how clear we try to lay this out, how clearly we try to lay it out, may still be questions. And, and then what should the default be? Should you, when in doubt, adjust or when in doubt, not adjust? And we just take the position here that we think the default should be adjust, in part because um, of the harm I just talked about. If you don't adjust, you do end up taking some money away from places where it's needed, and we just think that there's harm there. And also, it's not just money. And we need the, this goes back to where we were a while ago. There's also the public reporting, star ratings, uh, other kind of numeric ratings, hospital compare, physician compare, things like that, things that private uh, payers are doing. I, th I just think it's a bad idea to label safety net providers as bad providers if they, in fact, are not. Now, if they are, fair game. It's okay. Still may be a bad idea, actually, societally, but at least from a technical measurement point of view. But boy, we have real trouble if we inappropriately or unfairly uh, label safety net providers. You know, you think of an example, and this came up actually in a real example. Um, I won't name the name. There's an ACO, I, I was acquainted with the leader of it, uh, wanting to know whether they should bring an inner city um, provider into their ACO provider network. The concern was that the quality scores uh, in this provider were not uh, as good as some others. They wanted to bring this provider in. With adjustment, it is conceivable that these scores would have floated up to a somewhat higher level, made the ACO much more comfortable uh, with bringing this uh, provider into the network. It's that kind of concern. 
if we inappropriately label hospitals, inappropriately label individual providers and call them poor quality providers, I, I just think there's danger there. And uh, it would be better when in doubt to go ahead and adjust. You're uh, in a large complex healthcare delivery system that's dealing with a lot of complex patients. Bring, tell me how that those experiences uh, shape your views, although in some sense you've, you've kind of already told me, but I'd, I'd love to know a little more. The Henry Ford Health System serves the whole Southeast Michigan area, the Metro Detroit area, and we have a chance to observe firsthand, particularly when we look at things like primary care clinics, um, the relationship between these social factors and quality metrics. And I published a study about this uh, three years ago. Um, we took 22 primary care centers and we did a really simple thing. We looked at a whole set of HEDIS quality measures. These are things like both process and outcome measures, uh, things like mammography rates, colonoscopy rates, hemoglobin A1C testing, um, things like that. We looked at neighborhood SES just as a real simple way. If you serve a neighborhood, are you serving a rich neighborhood or poor neighborhood? Um, we had the whole range, top to bottom, divided them into three. We saw clear, clear associations uh, in, in the way you might expect. Uh, better scores in the uh, richer neighborhoods. And the interesting thing was, if you look at these clinics and you go into them and you know the people in them, they are as identical as they can be. The staffing, the EMR system, the training of the people, the credentials, the, the reminders, the prompts, the guidelines, the financial incentives, the pay rates, everything. And in the lower income areas, we even had some special services like point of care hemoglobin A1C testing as part of the diabetes program. In spite of all those equivalences, they're poor outcomes. And the last little kicker was we, over track over time, we were able to improve a specific process metric like hemoglobin A1C testing and completely reduce disparities in that. But the outcome disparity in hemoglobin A1C control did not go away. And when you live this on that kind of direct basis, you realize that some of these outcome differences are not quality of care. I just feel in my heart and soul, they are not quality of care, at least in this example. Now, if I was in a different organization, different community, I may feel differently about it. And I'm perfectly happy to accept that. And that's why in the paper, we try to take a balanced view. We said, there are times when it's appropriate, there are times when it's not appropriate. You don't want to adjust when you might mask or excuse poor quality. We fully accept that. But we certainly think it's right to adjust when the effect of these factors do not involve quality. And then we end up unfairly penalizing folks who should not be penalized. Well, I'm really glad you uh, brought in that real world experience. And I'll just say it's a reminder of yet another thing, which is that quality is multidimensional in <laughs> it's really super multidimensional because it has different attributes. It's viewed differently by people inside the system providing care and people receiving care. Uh, it has the process uh, outcome uh, structure dimensions to it. And there is this sort of sense that there's high quality and low quality, but what there really is, is many different dimensions of quality. And if we're using things like dollar incentives, which is single dimension, to respond to something that's multidimensional is almost always going to leave behind a lot of the nuance that you would want to uh, consider as you're, as you're uh, setting your policy or, or just thinking about the concepts. And I think all of us involved in this discussion 
want better quality. There's no question about that. It's really about how do you get there. Well, that's a perfect place to end it because that is exactly where we are trying to go. So Dr. Nerens, thank you for the paper, for the conversation, which brings it to life and uh, goes a little deeper. Of course, there's detail and nuance in the paper, but there's a different kind of nuance in the conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me on Health Policy. No, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.